All right, paradox, if you were to go to dictionary.com, this is what uh, dictionary.com uh, defines paradox as. It says this, uh, a seemingly absurd or a self-contradictory statement that is or may be true, uh, a person or thing exhibiting apparently contradictory characteristics. Relatively helpful, but uh, I found a, a different definition, not so much a definition, but more of a description. One of my favorite uh, authors uh, growing up, especially in my college years, was a man named Brennan Manning. I wrote a great book called uh, The Ragamuffin Gospel. Uh, and he said this about uh, paradox. When I get honest, I admit I am a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and suspicious. I am honest and I still play games. Now, as you just listen to Brennan's description of paradox, how many of us, I am guessing, you don't have to raise your hands, but most of us, if not all of us, would say, that's me. That's a great description of my life. I am a bundle of paradoxes. And this morning, uh, where we're headed in the section in Romans chapter 7, uh, is not only just revealing the paradox that was the Apostle Paul, but it's really also revealing the paradox that is you and me. And I've already asked this question, but just have you ever been confused by yourself? Have you ever just thought, why do I keep doing that which I, I really don't want to do? Why do I keep thinking this thought when I don't want to be thinking that thought? I know the thought I want to be thinking. I know the thing I want to be doing, but I can't do the very thing I want to do. I keep doing the thing I don't want to do. It's not only perplexing, but also can be a very defeating way to live life. And reality is many Christians, not just people, but many Christians live very defeated because they're so confused by themselves. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to read uh, Romans chapter 7. It's a bit of a tongue twister, so uh, we've got it on the screen for you. Uh, this is Romans uh, chapter 7, starting at verse 14. I'm going to read it pretty slow. We know that the law is spiritual. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, I do. Verse 16. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I'll just stop there for a second and just ask, uh, I think, a, a simple question of, can you relate with this thus far? Uh, I mean, I think this is, defines uh, not just many, but all of our struggle with our paradox of, I want to do it, but something prevents, something gets in my way, and I actually do the very thing I don't want to do. He goes on in verse 20. I'll pick up verse 19, actually. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, 
but it is sin living in me that does. Does it? Verse 21. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Verse 22. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Members meaning his body. Verse 24, his conclusion. What a wretched man I am. Okay, this is the Apostle Paul speaking here. I think generally when most of us think of the Apostle Paul, we think, wow, a pretty top-notch Christian had a good understanding of who God was, but yet his confession in verse 24 of chapter 7, what a wretched man I am. And then he asks a question, a very profound question, in the end of verse 24. Who will rescue me from this body of death? He doesn't ask the question, who's going to help me? Who's going to help me figure out me? He comes to the conclusion of, I actually need rescuing. I don't just need help. I actually need saving. I need to be rescued because me is so perplexed by me that I am beyond help because I'm wretched. I need actual rescuing. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. So that is Romans chapter 7, what I would just call uh, Paul's paradox, but it also reveals uh, our paradox. Uh, Now this morning, um, I want to do something a little bit uh, different. I typically, if you're familiar with uh, how we preach here, uh, we typically just walk through verse by verse uh, of what the scripture says, what it means, how we understand it, and how we apply it. But as I was really wrestling with uh, this text uh, this week, uh, it's a really challenging text. Uh, And rather than walking verse by verse, what I wanted to do is seek to answer what I think is really the big question uh, that is raised in this text. And I see the big question is this, how can I begin to live life where sin no longer defeats me, but I actually defeat sin? I see in Paul, uh, there's a battle, there's a war that's raging. And he comes to the conclusion, I can't do this anymore. I keep doing the things I hate. I don't want to do those things anymore, but I keep doing them. And so the question, how can I begin to live life? I mean, practical day-to-day, how can I live out my day-to-day existence, my day-to-day life, no longer defeated by the sin that so easily and quickly and often just beats me, defeats me, keeps me down? How can I live life actually defeating the very things that have often defeated me? That's the question that I really want to uh, unpack today. Um, but two questions before I can answer that one, just hopefully as a way of uh, maybe understanding and just clarification. Uh, If you've been tracking with us in Romans uh, thus far, Paul made very clear, especially in Romans chapter 6, he said very clearly that when we become Christians, we actually died to sin. I don't know if you remember that, but Paul, some would say, well, he's contradicting himself. How can you be dead to sin, but yet still struggle with sin? Paul in Romans, I'll just read a few verses uh, up on the screen again, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 2. By no means we died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? Jump down to verse 6 and 7. For we know that our old self 
was crucified with him so that, uh, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that uh, the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Verse 7, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. In the same way, verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So either Paul's got a crazy contradiction going on here that he says you've actually died to sin, you've been set free from sin, but yet in chapter 7 we find the Apostle Paul himself battling, struggling with sin. And so the question that I want to ask, answer first is, why do I still sin? If I've died to it, if I've been set free from sin, why does sin continue to be a reality in my life? I want to make clear as I answer this that one of the things that Paul teaches is that Paul says that we die to sin, but he never says that sin died. I'll say that again. I die to sin. I've been set free from sin. Me and anyone who is a Christian, anyone who's come to faith through Christ, uh, we have died to sin, but he doesn't say that sin actually dies. Now, we know that he says we died to sin. We've been set free from sin. And just if you hang out with one another for more than a day, we, we know that holiness is not an automatic thing, that the second you become a Christian, you're not uh, a completely sanctified, holy person. Uh, you're justified, meaning you're righteous before God, but now sanctified is you're growing in righteousness. So when he says we died to sin or we've been set free from sin, there's two things that Paul teaches of what that means. And the first one is this, because of Jesus, we are free from the penalty of sin. We've been set free from paying the penalty of sin because Jesus paid that for us. Before Jesus, I was left to pay the penalty of my sin, which was eternal separation in hell, in eternity, separated from God forever. Because of Jesus, I have been set free from paying the penalty of my sin. And the second thing is when Paul says we die to sin or we've been set free from sin, is what he's saying is we are set free from the power of sin in our lives. Meaning what used to be a master in my life, what used to control me, now because of Jesus, sin doesn't reign over me. Sin doesn't have dominion over me. Sin is not my master anymore. So I wanted to be clear that this is not a contradiction that Paul is teaching to say I struggle with sin, but he said I died to it. Uh, I did die to sin, but sin did not die. Now, practically speaking, dead to sin means that I am becoming what I am rather than living as I was. Say that again. What it means practically to live my life dead to sin or set free from sin is that I am becoming what I am rather than living as I was. I know the truth that because of Jesus, I don't pay the penalty for sin anymore because he paid it for me. And sin no longer is my master. I know that. That is the truth of the gospel. That is the great news of the gospel. So that is who I am, dead and dead to sin, free from sin. So I know that. So I'm becoming what I am rather than living as I was. I like how a uh, great theologian, um, Puritan author said it like this. It's one thing for sin to live in us. It's another for us to live in sin. This is going to be our struggle. 
It's one thing for sin to live in us. It's another for us just to live in sin. I am becoming who I am, who God's declared me to be because of Jesus. Free from sin, dead to sin. Now, Paul makes pretty clear that as you read Romans chapter 7, your life is either really going to be driven by your sinful nature or the Spirit of God at work in you. He really talks about this two natures of sinful nature, spiritual nature in Galatians 5. He says this, For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. This is the battle that Paul's having in chapter 7. A sinful nature and the nature of the Spirit of God at work within him. So that's one question I wanted to hopefully not just uh, answer or ask the question, but answer the question, what it means that I'm freed from sin, died to sin. The second question that I think is, and this is precursor to the big question, how do I live uh, life not defeated by my sin, but defeating those sins. Uh, the second question that I think is, I can, we can talk all day about uh, the question of why I sin, meaning really explore our sinful nature, but I think it's even more important to ask. And this was a really hard question I want you to just sit with for a second. Do I really care that I sin? Just sit with that for a second, because as I even penned that and wrote that, I was like, wow, well, do you? <laughs> do you, Michael Davis, really care about your sin? You can read all the theology you want on the sinful nature and the spirit nature, and you can have these great questions and conversations about why do I continue to sin, but I get floored by asking myself the simple question, do I actually care that I continue to sin? I think what happens is as we grow up, as we mature, as we get older, we get more callous towards our sin rather than getting more um, hatred towards our sin. I gave the example last week of Rob Rabe. If you looked at his fingertips, uh, they've got calluses all over his fingertips from playing guitar. It doesn't hurt him anymore to play guitar because he plays so much. And that was just a simple analogy or example of we can grow so calloused towards sin that we just don't care about sin anymore because it just doesn't impact us uh, in the way that it may have used to. And I think one of the reasons why we don't care about sin like we should is we believe a lie. And the lie just says, well, my sin is not really that big of a deal. We have the idea that there's levels of sin judging and worry and lust and anger, those aren't really that big of a deal. God doesn't look at those sins and be like, oh, well, God looks at those and be like, well, compared to rape and murder and adultery, you name whatever you think the big ones are, God doesn't look at and be like, well, compared to that, this guy's doing okay. We'll just let him go. I just, sin is sin. All sin is incredibly offensive to God. I think the mentality for many people is, well, God is going to forgive me tomorrow for what I'm going to do today. And ultimately, it's really my responsibility to give God something to do. And since he likes to forgive, I will give him plenty to forgive. And that is how we approach. I know we might not verbalize it like that, but it is a simple attitude of, well, 
God's going to forgive me anyway, so what's the point? Why don't I just go ahead and do it? And really, that just reveals two things. If that's my mentality of how I approach God about sin, it really just reveals I'm a very self-absorbed person. What I'm most concerned about, what I care most about, is really pursuing and fulfilling my hedonistic pleasures. And I think also what it reveals to us is that we don't really think much of the cross of Christ. Charles Spurgeon had, uh, and he's got a lot of these quotes that just level you, but this is one that really challenged me, and I hopefully, hopefully it will challenge you as well, of if we have a low opinion of the cross, if we have a low opinion of what Jesus did for us, then sin will be to us just maybe a struggle we have, not something we hate. He said this, If Christ has died for me, ungodly as I am, without strength as I am, then I can no longer live in sin, but must arouse myself to love and serve him who has redeemed me. And I love this last part of the quote. I cannot trifle with the evil that killed my best friend. I cannot trifle with the evil that killed my best friend. I must be holy for his sake. How can I live in sin when he has died to save me from it? It's a really powerful question right there. How can I uh, trifle with the evil that killed my best friend? I must be holy for his sake. As I read Romans 7, the back half, uh, I really get the sense that uh, Paul did not just struggle with sin, he actually hated it. When I see Paul, this is not a great chapter here on Paul's theology, this is a very emotional chapter for the Apostle Paul, of him letting us into a very intense battle, a very intense struggle. So much so where he says, I hate that which I do. I don't want to do this anymore. And I fear that until we get to this point where we actually say, like Apostle Paul, I can't stand what I'm doing. I actually hate what I'm doing. It's the complete opposite of what my heart desires to do. Until we get to that point, we will lose every time. And I just love the back half of Romans 7. Paul allows us to see his intense struggle where in verse 24, what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? All right, I'm going to focus on uh, answering the question. How can I begin to live life where sin no longer defeats me, but I defeat sin? Now, this is not a, a list of if you do these things, you know, uh, you'll be okay. This is not an exhaustive list. This is not a self-help list. Uh, this list, what I'm walking through, these five things uh, are certainly biblical, uh, but I think what Paul teaches throughout his letters in the New Testament of how we actually defeat the sin that resides in us. Now, I want to be like very crystal clear. Today, I'm focusing on our responsibility as it relates to sin, Okay. Next week, and actually in the coming weeks, we're going to be talking about specifically God's responsibility of the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit work in me? I think there's too many people who say, it's all on me, and they live a very defeated life. And there's too many people who say, well, it's all the Holy Spirit's responsibility. He'll take care of it, and we live a very defeated life. 
I have a relationship with God, meaning I have responsibility and God has responsibility. Today, I'm focusing solely on my responsibility towards sin. Number one, I'm not going to read all of these again, but consider what Paul said. I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Verse 15, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Verse 18, I know that nothing good lives in me. Verse 19, for what I do is not the good I want to do. No, it's the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Verse 22 and 3, for in my inner being, I do delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war. Verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body? And his conclusion, verse 25, is just simply, thanks be to God. How I read Paul's intense battle, his struggle. The language that he writes is is just, it's not just emotional, it's just powerful. It's warlike. How can I defeat the sin that so easily, quickly, often defeats me? Number one, belief before behavior. I think many times we approach battling sin in our life by trying to fix certain behaviors in our life. And the reality is, if I don't get my beliefs right, my belief straight, I can change as many behaviors as I want to, but I will continue to stumble. I will continue to fall. I will continue to be defeated. So number one is just simply this, belief before behavior. Walking in freedom from sin will not be accomplished because you tried really hard. Rather, freedom from sin becomes more and more of a reality when you believe the gospel. It's really interesting, and I think you would agree with this. Before you became a Christian, the message that you heard, hopefully you heard, is you need the gospel. You need the gospel in your life. You need to come to the gospel. And then as soon as you receive the gospel, the message is transferred to, well, now that you have the gospel, what you need to do now is you need to start working at growing spiritually. You receive the gospel, so you don't need that anymore because you got it. Now what you need to do is you need to start focusing on growing spiritually. And if that is what your Christian experience has been, let me just tell you that that's not the Christian experience that God intended you to have. It starts with the gospel, sustained by the gospel, and finishes with the gospel. There's never a point in my life where I don't need the gospel in my life anymore. Put it this way, have you ever thought to yourself, I can beat this sin if I just read my Bible more? I can defeat this stuff in my life if I just spend more time praying or if I spend more time serving, if I spend more, if I give more of myself away or give more, you know, if I just do this, 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 then I will defeat that which. If you've done that, you know that a performance-based approach to battling sin will have you beat every single time. God doesn't like look at your best effort and be like, well, since you read your Bible today and since you spent not just 15 minutes in prayer, but today you went the extra mile and and spent 20, today I will grant you victory like you've never experienced before because you worked for it. That's not how God operates. Belief in the gospel must come before my behavior. Now, when I say belief before behavior, what I'm saying is rather than believing that my behavior will lead to defeating sin in my life, I must believe that what ultimately defeats sins 
is the gospel, is Jesus. That was his conclusion. I'm a wretched man. What do I do? Who's going to rescue me? And his first response is, well, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that I have Jesus in my life. I am not that defeated man anymore. Why? Because I have someone to thank. Many of us don't have a person to thank. We look at a pile of our best effort and say, well, well, thanks that I tried this or thanks that I did that. Paul thanked Jesus. Belief must come before behavior. I like how Paul actually said it in 2 Corinthians. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. What I need to believe is that God's grace, the gospel, is sufficient for this battle. That's what I need more than anything. I'm not suggesting we don't need to repent of sin in our life. We do. But I need to get my my head and my heart straight that the gospel is sufficient for me. This is uh, what Mr. John Piper said. Grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. It's the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus, the sufficiency of Jesus that enables me to defeat that which has been defeating me. One more verse from the author of Hebrews. He says this, uh, chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have, and the high priest there is Jesus, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. When I'm in the midst of the fight, I'm not thinking about, well, if I just change this attitude, change this behavior, what I need to be thinking is my first line of defense is I go to Jesus, I go to the gospel knowing that I will find mercy and I will find grace to help me in this time of need. Number one is belief must come before behavior. Belief in the gospel that Jesus is sufficient for you in all, in all things at all times. Number two, confess. <clears throat> this will be uh, maybe an easy question, but I think a question that many of us might not have an answer for is, who knows you? Like, as you, you know you, God knows you, but who else knows you? And I don't mean just like knows a part of your life, like knows how you're doing at work or knows how you're doing at home or with your wife or your husband or knows how you're doing with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or knows how, like who knows you, all of you, not just some, not just most, but who in your life knows absolutely all of you? In Romans 7, the verses that we've read in verse 14 through 25, do you feel like you know Paul? I mean, did he let us into his intense battle, his intense struggle? Was there any one of us who looked and said, you know what, we should probably take that guy's apostleship away. I cannot believe he struggles with sin. Like, I cannot believe Apostle Paul confessed publicly in the Bible, in the book of Romans, that he battles sin. Was there any one of us who looked at Paul and judged him, thinking to ourselves, 
wow, I can't believe Paul. What does he know? He knows nothing. I'm not listening to anything he has to say anymore. What I love about what Paul did in Romans chapter 7, verse 14 and 20 through uh, verse 25, is he put his stuff on the table. He put himself, he opened up himself. Nowhere in the New Testament does Paul try to impress you with his piety. Over and over again, starting here in Romans 7, Paul is very open and honest to say, man, what a wretched man I am. So I'll go back to the question, who knows you? Not just parts of you, but who genuinely knows you? Knows your stuff. And when I say stuff, I mean sin. Like who do you have in your life that you're putting your sin on the table before? Because if you don't have someone in your life that you can ultimately confess your sin to, someone that can encourage you and love you and serve you, you will remain very much defeated. Why? Because you're doing it alone. Jesus is completely sufficient, but what Jesus has done in his sufficiency is to raise up a community of people, of men and women, to come alongside one another, to carry one another's burdens. Who should this person be? Because I think most of us would say, I would love to have a person like this, but I don't, and I look around me, and I don't actually know who this person should be. And I'll give you three very quick things of who this person should be, the person that should know you. Number one is that they should be someone who is committed to loving Jesus more than they love you. Meaning, you don't want to confess to someone only to have them say, oh man, that's not a big deal. You should see what I've been doing. You need to have someone in your life that who absolutely loves Jesus, meaning their hatred for sin will actually inspire you to hate sin like they do. So number one, the person should be someone that loves Jesus. Number two, someone who understands the gospel of grace. They can tell you that you're not condemned, but challenge you to sin no more. This is Jesus' response to the woman who was literally caught in the act of adultery. Woman, I don't condemn you, but I do charge you to leave your life of sin. So the person needs to be someone who genuinely loves Jesus, needs to be someone who understands grace. And grace is, there is no condemnation, but there's a challenge and a charge with grace. Stop sinning. And number three, someone who genuinely loves you. They love Jesus, they get the gospel of grace, and they love you. Meaning when you weep, they weep with you. When they see that you're broken over sin in your life, they break with you. And when you are experiencing and just you've defeated something that's been defeating you for a really long time, they don't look at you with like jealous eyes or even condemning eyes of like, well, what the heck took you so long? They, they celebrate with you. Someone who loves Jesus, someone who understands grace, and someone who loves you. Obvious question is, where, where are these people? <laughs> where do you find this person? Well, I'll give you two. Life groups. Go to a life group. Start cultivating that relationship in your life group. I hope that in the life groups that we just started this past month, uh, past few weeks actually, um, that this is happening, that what you guys say in your life groups, what you share in your life groups, you can put you before others, knowing that they will love you and serve you, encourage you and challenge you and bless you. Why? Because it's a people who are really trying to grow in their love for Jesus 
They're growing in their understanding of grace and they're growing in their knowledge of being able to love you. So life groups. And the second thing is begin being that person. Too many people wait for that person to just be born into our life. Be that person and watch how when you be that person, you inspire others to that as well. Number one, believe, be, believe, belief must come before uh, behavior. Number two was uh, simply confess. Someone's got to know you like Paul allowed us to know him. Number three, very simple one, is replace. Sins can't be merely removed. They must be replaced. I like how one author said it like this, a lesser love with a greater love. Another pastor um, uh, from 17th century, uh, Thomas Chalmers, said this, the only way to dispose the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. I can't just say, well, I'm going to start hating this sin. What was there, what my heart, how it used to crave sin, love sin, long for sin, think about sin, plan sin. I need to take that which was consumed all of me and replace it with a new affection. If I just make this commitment, well, I'm going to stop doing this, but I don't replace it with anything else in my life, then I will just go back to that which I loved most. So number three is just simply replace. Point is not to stop something, stop sinning, but to start something. A couple examples of what this practically might look like. In college, uh, I went to The Ohio State University, uh, who experienced our first loss yesterday in basketball. It was a sad day. But um, uh, one of the things in college, myself and a group of men, we really struggled with lust. Walking around campus, there's a campus of about 50,000 people, and one of the things, we struggled with lust. And it was not something that we wanted to dwell on. It was not something we wanted to be consumed with. It was not something we wanted to think about. I had a group of guys that we were really committed to honoring uh, God with pure thoughts and honoring future wives with pure thoughts. But every time we'd walk around campus and we'd start thinking, well, don't lust, don't lust, what am I doing? I'm just lusting. I, just, that's, I haven't replaced it with anything. And so we challenged each other and said, every time you're walking around campus and the temptation, the thought towards lust, towards this sin, creeps into your mind. Start praying for your brother. And it was just me initially and three other guys. So every time a lustful thought came into my head, came into my heart, what I did is I stopped that and I started praying for myself and then my three other roommates. And by the time that I finished praying for them, that wherever they were, whatever they were doing, whatever situation they were in, that they would be honoring God with their purity, the thought was gone. And eventually, the thought would come back, and so I'd start praying again. And eventually, I had a list of 10 guys who got in on this little deal. It's a big secret. Walking around campus, no one knew we were praying for each other. But it was one of the most helpful things to battle lust in my life. I replaced that which was a desire, a sinful desire, a wrong desire, a, a desire that dishonored God, and I replaced it with something that was pleasing to God, something that was beneficial to my brothers. Jesus made clear that worry is a sin. 
So if worry besets you, what can you do when worry shows up? Well, rather than just trying to convince yourself, don't worry about this, don't worry about this, don't worry about this, and you find yourself, wow, I'm, all I'm doing is worrying about this. I take that which is sin, and worry is sin. Jesus commanded us, do not worry, Matthew 6. So I replace that with this. Well, Scripture says in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on me because I care for you. When I am tempted towards worry, towards anxiety, this is the verse that runs through my mind. It's the first verse that runs through my mind. Michael Davis, cast your anxiety, cast your fear, cast your worry on me. Why? Because I love you. Because I care about you. You were not intended to carry this luggage, this baggage, this suitcase filled with your anxieties and your fears and your worries. So rather than trying, oh, I'm going to put this bag down, I pick up another bag, the truth of Scripture. And I say it again and again and again. Michael Davis, cast your anxieties on me because I care for you. If pornography is a besetting sin, what can you do when the desire for porn shows up? You're sitting there by yourself and you're getting overwhelmed with this temptation of, I just feel drawn to the computer right now. I want to run to this. I don't really want to run to it, but I'm getting so tempted to go and visit places that I know ultimately don't honor God. If I'm married, don't honor my spouse. If I'm engaged, don't honor my fiance. If I have a girlfriend, don't honor my girlfriend. If that is besetting to you, what do you replace that with? Ultimately, I'm not making, I'm not going to open up this whole can, but pornography is such a selfish thing. It's all about you. It's all about gratifying you. And so take, replace that selfish desire with something that would be a sacrificial desire. Try serving. If you're at home, just giving you hopefully a practical example, I'm speaking primarily to men, and I'm not saying women don't struggle with these things, but if you're a guy, you're home alone, and you're getting hit with that temptation, what I replace the selfish desire with is a desire to actually start sacrificially serving. Go do the laundry. Go clean your house. Go do something that would be helpful or beneficial to someone else. So wives, if you come home over the next few months, I'm like, wow, the house is like crazy clean. The dishes are always washed. And wow, like the bathrooms are even clean. Someone's been scrubbing toilets. No, that, that's a good thing. Take what is a selfish thing, replace it with something that is sacrificial. It's honoring to God, it's pleasing to God, and beneficial to someone else. Point is simple, when battling besetting sin, I can't simply remove something, I must seek to replace it. Number four, reflect. Number one was belief before behavior. Number two was confess. Number three is replace. And number four is reflect. Say this in a general way, but much if not all of my sin is a direct result of me no longer reflecting on Jesus Christ crucified for me. When I am just dwelling, living, thinking, craving, longing for sin, I've stopped reflecting on what Jesus did for me on the cross. Charles Spurgeon, in a very another convicting quote, said this, A sight of his death, if it is a true sight, is the death of all love of sin. Look to the cross and hate your sin, for sin nailed your well-beloved to the tree. Look up to the cross and you will kill sin. 
For the strength of Jesus' love will make you strong to put down your tendencies to sin. I'll speak for myself. I can say that all my sin is a direct result of I took my eyes off of my Savior. I took my eyes off Christ who was crucified for me. I, I begin to forget what he did. Because when I dwell on, when I reflect on what Jesus did for me, I'm overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude. I'm not eager to run towards sin. I'm not eager to do that which put him there. I'm eager to, le- to live grateful to him for what he's done for me. Number four is reflect. And I think the Apostle Paul, in a, a verse that uh, if you've not memorized it yet, it's a great verse to have memorized, is Galatians 2.20. just says this, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I just have a picture as I get to know Paul in his letters, especially in Romans and throughout the New Testament, is he couldn't stop thinking about what Jesus did for him. He just didn't stop thinking. So when he asks the question in verse 24 of Romans, what a wretched man I am, what, who's going to rescue me? Jesus. The second my mind, my heart, my life drifts away from the cross, I will just walk right into sin's path. Number one, belief before behavior. Number two, confess. Number three was replace. Number four is reflect. And lastly, number five, remain in the fight. I love what Romans 7 teaches is Paul didn't give up. I love at the back half of Romans chapter 7, he says, well, I'm done for. I might as well give up. This is too intense. It's too hard. I'm too much of a paradox. I confuse myself too much. It's just not worth fighting. I'm thankful that when Paul gets to the end of his life, the last letter that we have from the Apostle Paul is his last letter, uh, 2 Timothy, uh, his last letter to his friend, a fellow pastor named Timothy. And I'm thankful as Paul re- recounts, he's not, oh God, I'm so thankful for how many churches I planted. I'm, I'm, not, I'm so thankful for all the souls that were saved. What Paul recounts in his last moments is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Verse 7 again. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Appearing. He didn't give up. He didn't quit. He didn't tap out. He didn't cry, uncle. Paul kept fighting what he called was a great fight. What he called was a worthy fight. Why? Because it was a fight that honored his God. And it was a fight that encouraged Christians for the past 2,000 years. Can't tell you how many times I have been, and if you're familiar with the New Testament, the Apostle Paul The Apostle Paul has been spurred on by this man's relentlessness in fighting that which was fighting against him. And he gets to the end, I fought a good fight. I know we don't often think about the end of our life and what we would say, but I'll challenge you to do that now. At the end, what do you really want to be saying? 
Like, do you want to just walk into heaven saying, yeah, Jesus, I did it my way. You, you were probably really impressed with what you saw. Or Jesus, you know what? I just did as much sinning as possible because I just, I thought you would want to forgive me as much as possible. I don't want to walk into sin, walk into uh, heaven bragging to Jesus that I did it my way, and I certainly don't want to walk into heaven hoping that he would be impressed with my sinful resume. And I don't also want to limp into heaven because I refuse to fight a good fight. I want to be able to walk into heaven, not by my own strength, but by the strength of God at work, saying, I fought a good fight. There's a great book, a Puritan pastor named John Owen wrote called Mortification of Sin. And his last question in this book, or question he actually spent a great deal of time talking about is, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. <clears throat> and a very just powerful phrase of a sentence you can remember is, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Belief must come before behavior. Confess, someone's got to know you. I take and replace this, a lesser love with a greater love. Number four is I'm reflecting, reflecting continually, constantly on the cross. I mean, just, I didn't ask this question earlier, but I'll ask it now. How much do you really think about the cross? Like, I know we celebrate communion every Sunday, and I hope that your reflection on what Jesus did for you is not just when we celebrate communion. Because another question that hopefully will spur you on is, how radically different would your life look like day-to-day life if you were dwelling constantly, continually thinking about what Jesus did for you. I'm going to guess that much of our lives would look radically different because we're dwelling on the cross of Christ, what Jesus did for me, rather than on what this will do for me or what this pleasure will bring me. That was number um, uh, four, is reflect. And then the last one was just simply remain in the fight. Just as we finish uh, today, uh, this was a challenging text for me because I'm challenged by myself. I'm confused by myself. I, I just, Paul resonates with me. I do that which I don't want to do, but I keep doing it. Actually, the stuff I hate, that's the stuff I keep doing. But I don't come to a place of hopelessness. I come to a place of, wow, Thank God for Jesus. Because if I didn't have Jesus, then I would be undone. Not only would I be left to pay the penalty of my sin, I would be just stuck, enslaved to sin. But I love his conclusion in verse 25. Thank you, Jesus, for doing for me what I could never have done for myself. If you're in the midst of the battle right now, if that's you, please keep fighting. If you are in the midst of the battle right now and you've got some sins that have just been besetting you, defeating you, please remain in the fight. It is a worthy fight. Keep fighting. Don't quit. Don't cry uncle and don't tap out. If you've gotten knocked down a while ago and 
either just lack the desire or energy to get back up. My encouragement to you is there will be times, and there, as you probably know, sin will knock you over. Sin will knock you down. But belief that Jesus is sufficient, that sin does not knock me out. And then lastly, if you've stopped believing that life with God is, is better than a life of just walking in the ways of sin. I wanted to finish with uh, one of my favorite quotes by C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. If you're in a place where you're really, the battle is, I actually think sin is a little bit more appealing than walking in a life of love with God and honor to God and obedience to God. If there's something in you that says sin is so much better, this is what uh, Mr. Lewis said. If we considered the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I can tell you that if you continue just to pursue sin because you think that the promises of sin and the pleasures of sin are so much more appealing than life with God, you are missing out on what God has for you. You are settling for something less. I can't convince you of that, but I can only tell you that you are settling right now for something less than what God has for you in relationship with Jesus. Belief before behavior, confess, replace, reflect, and remain in the fight. I'm really thankful uh, for this section in Romans. It's a really challenging uh, section in Romans, but I'm thankful that Paul allowed us into his struggle because it reveals to us our struggle. Uh, but it doesn't leave us without hope. It leaves us with the truth that Jesus is sufficient.